we're going through the book of Colossians. And if you'll remember, uh, there was a, uh, two guys who came back from Ephesus who heard the gospel and believed and became Christians, and they came back to Colossae, their city, and they started a church. It's probably a church about the size of this one right here. And these folks heard the gospel, and they believed in Christ, but they lived in a place, in a city that didn't, and were feeling pressures all around them to minimize their view and understanding of who Jesus was. Sure, Jesus was a way, he was part of the solution, but, but you're, you're holding him too high. And so Paul wrote this letter, this book, the, book, the letter to the Colossians, to talk about who the real Jesus really was. And so that's exactly what we're going to spend time looking at today, the real Jesus. So I invite you to follow along in, in uh, this sermon text, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which can be found in your bulletin or, of course, in the scriptures. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The word of the Lord. Well, you know, things are going a little bit crazy in the Rodriguez house lately. We have four kids. And I tell you, when you have kids, stuff begins to multiply. Even as I'm speaking to you right now, the Legos are multiplying by cellular division and will be there waiting for us when we get home. You ever step on a Lego at night, too? It drives me crazy. We've got so much stuff. It's just unbelievable stuff and stuff and stuff. And we've got, you know, with the introduction of Maria, who we brought back from Nicaragua, that's my, my fourth child, my daughter, we've got a whole new brand of stuff. Okay? Are you with me? Dolls. Dolls everywhere. I mean, we've got every Barbie that you can imagine. It's just crazy. How, I mean, how many Barbies does one girl need? And they're all naked, too. What's up with that? There's, like, naked Barbies everywhere. And the guys are all like, oh, dad, jeez, come on, huh? Got name. Well, one of the things I love playing with Maria is I love playing house with her. Okay, I never played house with my boys. You see, the, house, the boys would make a house, and then they'd stomp on the house. Okay? Not my daughter. She actually likes to play house. And so she has this imaginary world, if you will, with her dollhouse and her dolls where everything is perfect. And she just, come play with me and let's play dolls together. And, you know, so we play with the little house and these miniature things. And I was playing with her. And in Maria's world, life is perfect. And everybody lives happily ever after in Maria's doll world. I thought to myself, wouldn't that be neat if we could do that with our life as well? What if I had an imaginary shrink ray and I could shrink everything down and manage it just like I manage Maria's little doll world? 
I mean, think about that, you know? What if we could have that perfect life that we all wanted? I actually brought some of the toys. Here's husband and wife, Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver, with a smile on their face. What if this was just the ideal thing, you know? No fighting, no whatever. It was just perfect, and they were together, you know? And we had our little baby, our little child here, and we had that perfect family unit, 2.5 children, you know, that thing right there. And, you know, what if, what if work was perfect, too? What if I could shrink work down and make it manageable and easy, you know? And I had the right education for what I needed to do, you know, so I could be, you know, uh, have the profession. I got a little doctor here. I could do the job that I wanted, and I'd get paid, and I'd, you know, get the adulation and respect. I even have a little dog here, which is really kind of the size of a large polar bear that could take you out, but we won't talk about that. And I could have all of the possessions that I wanted, you know? I could shrink them down and manage them. I have my car and, you know, furniture I wanted. I want to go ahead and buy it. And, you know, there'd be enough money for everything that we needed right here, all in my own little world, you know? And, well, you know, what about, what about God? I mean, you know, God's in there too, you know? I got my little God, little cross, little part of that. And I could just go ahead and put all this in, and I could go ahead and manage life, life in a box. Wouldn't that be fantastic? But the reality is we can't do that, can we? Life isn't like that. Life gets crazy. We try to manage life, but the reality is all too often life manages us, doesn't it? You know, and that relationship that we had, that perfect world we had as a child with the husband and the wife, you know, it's, it's not all smiles, isn't it? It starts to get difficult and traction in our own little world. You know, and those little kids, they begin to grow up and they get crazy hair like that. And then they grow up and they become teenagers and they turn on you. And it's crazy and they ask you these questions and you're like, I don't have any idea how to answer that. Life becomes unmanageable. You know, and then we have our career and stuff and we have this perfect picture of it and then we get into it and we're lacking the education we need or things are being changed or downsized and all of a sudden we're in a conflict with our boss and life begins to overwhelm us. How do we manage our life? How do we live the dream life that we're supposed to? And what does God have to do with it? Where does God fit into this little perfect world that we have in our mind that we want, but we can't seem to find? The truth of the matter is we can't manage our life. This passage tells us we want to be God of our world, but we don't know how because we're not meant to. But what if there was someone that had the ability to take all of these elements of our life and put them in their proper place? to help us manage the life that we didn't, we're not able to seem to manage ourselves. Wouldn't that be fantastic? The reality is we're not to, man, to manage our life, but someone is, and that person is Jesus Christ. And it's only when we put him in his proper place that we will experience the riches of his grace. I want to talk about putting Christ in the proper place in our lives. And there are three points that I want to make. The first is, Christ is the creator. And as he is such, we must make him the source of our life. But Christ is not only the creator, he is also the king. And because he is the king, we must make him the goal of our life. But Christ is not only the king, he is also the reconciler. And so we must make him the hope of our life. 
Three things, and I want to tear these apart piece by piece because it's only when we put Christ in his proper place that we will experience the riches of his grace. Well, let's look at this first one. Christ is the creator. We see in this passage, the first verse, verse 13, that it says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This word image in the Greek is actually the word icon, from where we get the word icon in English. What is an icon? An icon is an accurate representation of an invisible reality. It's taking something that's out there and it's bringing it into an apprehensible form. It's making something out there tangible, understandable, graspable. That's what an icon is. And this passage is saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God. How do we know what God is like? How do we know his characteristics? How do we know what, he, what, uh, what God thinks of us? How do we know how he acts, how he feels? We know it through his icon, Jesus, who is the image of God, who accurately represents God. Well, there's only one way that Jesus could be the icon of God, and that would be as if he was God himself. See, only God can represent God. Think of it this way. Imagine you had never met my wife, Lee Ellen which would be a tragedy because she's absolutely stunning, okay? But let's say you'd never met her, and I came in, and I wanted to represent her to you. I wanted to be her icon. And so I came in, and I said, here I am, the icon of Lee Ellen. Now, you might be struck by my good looks. You might be struck by my charm. But at some point, you would say, time out. There's no way you can be the icon of Lee Ellen because you're a man, and she's a woman. To represent accurately, you must be of the same material, of the same source. Jesus is the icon of God. He can image God because he is God. Listen to Hebrews. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And from Colossians, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Christ is encapsulated into the icon. God encapsulated. That's Christ. John 1.18 says it this way. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. But wait a second, Carlos. Time out. Verse 13 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It says he's born there. He's the firstborn. So surely he must be created But listen to what it says. It says that not he is the firstborn in creation, he is the firstborn over creation. See, before there was anything, there was Jesus. Before there were stars, before there were planets, before there were comets, before there was anything, there is Jesus, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn is not referring to time, it's referring to hierarchy, that he is above all. The real Jesus is not a creature. He's a creator. And as such, he is the architect of creation. Look in verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. Everything, sunrises, volcanoes, dandelions, everything was created by Christ. In fact, in the Greek, it says, in him all things were created. He is the source of life. 
You know, they, uh, scientists have looked back in time and they've come up with this theory for creation called the Big Bang Theory. Ever heard of that? That all life began as a singularity, a point, if you will, that exploded beginning energy. All life comes from this common source. What is this common source? The one who is creator over all, Jesus Christ. And because he is creator, he is also sustainer. Look in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, what is it that keeps the planets going around and around? They discover this new planet with this massive orbit. What is it that keeps it coming around and around? What is it that keeps the electrons and the protons spinning around the atom? Scientists would say gravitational forces, electromagnetic forces, but where did those come from? They don't have an answer for that, but the scriptures do. For in him all things were created, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. In him all things hold together. If we want to understand where life came from and how it continues, we continue to look back on one source, Jesus Christ. What does that have to do with you and me? See, if we want to understand who we are, we need to understand who he is. The scriptures say that Jesus is the image of God. But in Genesis, when God was making man and woman, remember he crafted all the animals, all the birds, all the fish, and at the very end, what does it say? That he made man and woman into the image of God. See, Jesus is the image of God, but man and woman was made into the image of God. So where do we discover our designer, our model, our prototype from where we were cut and made? Jesus Christ is the architect of creation. We are creature. He is creation. But when we look into the mirror, we see a dim picture of the face of Christ, the one who made us. The unfinished painting of Jesus and Mary could be a lost Michelangelo. Potentially the art find of the century, recent news story, but to, but to the upstate family on whose living room wall it hung for years in Buffalo, it was just called the Mike, M-I-K-E. But when a tennis ball hit it in the 1970s when the Cobra children were playing, they decided to take down the Mike and wrap it and put it behind a sofa where it sat for 27 years. When Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Martin Kober retired in 2003 and had some time on his hands, his father gave him a task. Research the family lore that the painting was really a Michelangelo. Kober, now 53, dug into the history of painting, contacting auction houses, doing research, even talking to museum directors in Italy. And he found Antonio Forcellino, an Italian art historian and historian, and told him all about the tennis ball in the picture on the back of his sofa. Forcellini was horrified, but he thought there's no way this could actually be true. It's certainly a copy. He didn't believe in it, but still he skeptically visited the Cobra's home outside of Buffalo to view the painting, and the trip left him breathless. In reality, this painting was even more beautiful than the versions hanging in Rome and Florence. The truth was, this painting was much better than the ones they had. I had visions of telling them that there was this crazy guy in America telling everyone he had a Michelangelo in his home. History also shows a credible chain of evidence out to how this painting, as improbable as it may be, ended up in the home in Buffalo. 
Forcellino says, I'm absolutely convinced that this is a Michelangelo painting. One thing is for certain, the painting's potential worth. It is now in a bank vault, for the rare Michelangelo drawings that have come up for sale in recent years have sold for as much as $20 million. And a possible Michelangelo at the Metropolitan Museum of Art could be worth as much as $300 million, said Wallace of the Lost Pieta's Value. See, where do we go to find our life? Where do you go to find the value of your existence? For many of us, we don't have answers. And so we walk around from place to place, person to person, put a price tag on my life, give value to me, substantiate my existence. But our value is derived from the source. What made this painting so valuable? It was the one who made it, Michelangelo. And when we look at this passage, we realize that it is Christ who is our source, Christ who has made us, and he has made us into his image. What is the price and the value of you based on that? It's priceless, priceless. And so we must stop looking to other things for our value and look to the source from our creator. We must stop worrying about what everyone else says about, about us, and we must look to Christ, the one who made us because he made us and he sustains us. When other people come into your life and they say to you, you're not worth much, you're a disappointment, why aren't you like this? We can look to Christ, the one who we were made in the image. When our life is out of control, we can look to Christ, the source of our life. For when we put Christ in his proper place, we will experience the riches of his grace. If Christ, this brings me to my second point, if Christ is creator, then Christ is also king. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Think about that, all things. This passage here shows us that Christ is over all things, thrones or powers, there he's speaking of the physical world, all the kings, all the governments, all the parliaments, Christ is over them. But also rulers and authorities, all the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Christ is over Satan, Christ is over his angels. There's this thinking in life that God and good and evil are equal. But that is not what this passage shows us at all. Christ is God, Satan is an angel. Christ is over all authority and power. But we see even more incredibly that all things were created by him and for him. See, there's a purpose for everything in life. It's a purpose for planets, purpose for monkeys, purpose for fish. There's even a purpose for Brussels sprouts, which I think should be exterminated off the face of the earth, myself personally. There's a purpose for everything. There's a purpose for us. And what is that? How were we designed and made to delight in the supremacy of Christ? See, built into our DNA, the framework of who we are is to live for Jesus Christ. We ask ourselves the question, what am I supposed to do with my life? Am I supposed to take this job, that job? Am I supposed to date that gal, that gal? Am I supposed to move here or here? But this passage shows us that's not the most important question. The most important question is, for whom am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with my life? That is the core question. The question is this, who will I worship? 
If you look at your life, if you look at the movies, if you look at all the songs, you will discover that we are designed to give ourselves to something other than ourselves. Any culture that you go to around the world, and there are a lot of different things going on, a lot of different practices and traditions and so forth, but one thing is universal. Whether you go into the jungles of the Amazon or you go to Europe, you will discover that we all worship something. We worship different things. We have to worship something. Here in America, it's so often that what we worship is another person. I'm looking for Mr. Wrong. Um, excuse me, I'm looking for Mr. Right, symbolized by Ken, smiling fellow right here. I'm looking for the guy. If I find the guy, then everything will lock into place because all will be well with the world. I have found a suitable object for my worship. But we know that that doesn't work out. Maybe for guys, it's the chase. I've got to find the girl, the one who completes me, the one who brings everything into focus, the one who brings me peace and purpose in life. But we realize that's not true because nobody can fulfill the role of God in our life. It just doesn't work. Maybe we put ourselves in the center of this search for the, worship, uh, for the center of my life. At the center of my life is my favorite three. I call them I, myself, and me. But it doesn't work, does it? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever found a fulfilled, self-centered person? Ever found a happy, selfish person who's at peace with themselves in the world? You can't find them. I know. I've been one of them. Ask my kids. You can't find a happy, self-centered person. Have you ever found a fulfilled and peaceful, uh, self-centered church? It's all about the pastor. Or in fact, it's all about us. You won't find peace there because we were designed to live for one thing. We were designed to live for Christ alone. Saw this article uh, recently, though it was from a time ago. June 5th, 1986. Kathy Ornsby was a 21-year-old pre-med junior from North Carolina State and was a superb distance runner. Just seven weeks earlier, she had unexpectedly won the 10,000-meter relay at the Penn Relays in the fastest time ever run by a collegian woman. Now this 5'8", 108-pound uh, runner was running in the 10,000-meter final of the NCAA championships in Indianapolis. For the first 6,500 meters, she was neck and neck with the front three, leaving the pack behind. But it was clear that she was struggling to stay up. When unexpectedly, when the first three turned the corner, she continued running. In the finals, jumped a fence, went across the softball field, and found a, uh, ran onto a nearby bridge on New York Street over the White River and dove off of it, hitting the ground 40 feet below instantly paralyzing herself. The report called in was an attempted suicide. Sources close to the team who didn't want to be identified said that Ornsby had seemed overwhelmed by her recent success. She is a shy girl and an introvert, and she seemed to put pressure on herself that she had to run fast every race. She apparently felt that she had to win the NCAA race, and she was hanging in, but I guess she felt she couldn't win, and she couldn't handle it. See, Kathy had a finish line. She had a goal for which she was striving, but it was a mirage. It was a facade. When she couldn't accomplish the goal that she had set out for herself, her life was over. Her life just seized up, and she decided to try to end her life. 
Was Kathy faithful with her goal? Yes. Was she devoted? Yes. Was she almost religious with it? Yes, she was. But there was one problem. It was the wrong goal. It was the wrong God. And her God failed her. See, all of us have a goal that we're training for. All of us have a finish line. But what is it? What's in your box that you're hoping to find that's going to find satisfaction for your life? Maybe it's my family. You know, I have this picture that's been foisted on me of the perfect family. If I could just have that perfect husband, if we could live the way that we were supposed to, and my kids would be exactly the type of kids that I wanted, and we'd look perfect on the outside and the inside, then life would be perfect. But life isn't perfect, is it? Sometimes you get that curveball thrown at you, and you discover that the goal, you can't quite obtain it. See, there's a big difference between good things and ultimate things. There's only one thing that's designed to be the ultimate thing. Everything else will end in failure. It's only when we give ourselves, our lives, to the one who gives us life that we can find life. All other things will enslave us. And so, because Christ is the king of life, we must make him the goal. We must take the various things of our life and we must examine them. And furthermore, we must give them to Christ. God, I don't know about my marriage, as imperfect as it is, but I'm going to give it to you because my goal is to live for you. I don't know about my education and the job I have. I don't know if I'm going to be the president of the United States or I'm going to be out of work. But whatever you give me, I'm going to make you the goal of my life. As best as I know how, the goal of my life is to not to make my children the center of my life, but you. And so I'm going to give to you my children. To make Christ preeminent over all things is what we were meant to do. For when we put Christ in his proper place, it's only then that we will experience the riches of his grace. This brings me to my final point. If Christ is the king over all creation, he is also the reconciler of creation. And thus, we must make him the hope of our lives. What do I mean by reconciler? Look at verse 18. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Verse 15, we saw that he's the firstborn over all creation, but here we see he's the firstborn among the dead. What does that mean? We can only understand this passage if we look at verse 19, which says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, Christ is not only creator, he's also reconciler. Why is that? Because creation is broken. Creation is at war with God. See, something is wrong when Christ is creator, but his creation refuses to recognize him as such. Something is wrong when Christ is king, but his people refuse to recognize him as who he is. This problem we call sin. Planet Earth is a planet in rebellion. And the consequences of a planet in rebellion is sin and misery. You ever thought about why we have war and persecution, racism, oppression? They're all the result of people that have not put Christ in his proper place. 
But we see here in this passage that even creation is itself is at odds with God. Why do we have natural disasters? Tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes and all these problems that you see. They're the result of sin, a creation that is at odds with God. The consequences of this rebellion, according to the scripture, is death. And so there's only one way that we must change. We must be reborn. See, what we need is not new effort, not new resolve, a new paradigm shift. What we need is a new life. See, Jesus did something we could not fathom. He rescued us from death by tasting death for us. See, we all understand everything. A lot of what I've talked about here in these first two points is not new news to anybody. But how do we become the people that live like that? The only answer is a new birth. A God who is king and worthy of all worship we can grasp. But a God who will get up on a cross and die that we might have new life. This is difficult to fathom. But that's what it says. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. In Jesus, we see his role as creator. We see the power of God. In Jesus' role as king, we see the glory of God. But in Jesus' role as reconciler, we see the love of God. Many of us are familiar with the legend of the phoenix. The phoenix is this mythical sacred firebird uh, that can be found in the mythologies of the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, even the Chinese and the Egyptians. And in this legend, this phoenix, this firebird lives for about 500 years. And as the phoenix is dying, it makes a nest for itself out of sticks and wood and it puts itself in the nest and it catches itself on fire. And, the, and, the, and this intense fire burns up the nest and it burns up the phoenix all the way down to ashes. And then from the ashes, a new phoenix is reborn to live again for another 500 years. See, that's a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ with one exception. See, Jesus is the creator. Jesus doesn't grow old. Jesus doesn't die. And yet we see him getting up on a cross, being willing to suffer the torture and ignominy of the humiliation foisted upon him, being buried in a tomb. For why? For what? To make us alive in him. Christ, as reconciler of creation, can give us a new life to become the people we were meant to be. And so, he is the hope that we have. Is there hope for you and me that we can be restored to God? Is there hope that we can change? The answer is yes, but it's not in ourselves. For it is only when we put Jesus in his proper place that we will experience the riches of his grace. And so I close to you with these three final points. Look to him as your creator, the one who made you and sustains you. And so put him in his rightful place as the source of your life. Second, look to him as your king, the one you were made to glorify and worship and make him as the goal of your life. And finally, look to him as your reconciler and restorer, the one who gives you new birth and makes peace between you and God and make him the hope of your life. For it is only when you put Jesus in his proper place that you will experience the riches of his grace.
by God's grace, let us do so. Let's pray.